Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today's program focuses on crime, but it is a tale of two extremes. Several of the safest small towns and safest cities in the country are in Pennsylvania, including a few in our area. That's according to recent research by the security firm SafeWide.com. Joining us is Rebecca Edwards. She's a security expert, safety, and technology reporter for SafeWise.com. Ms. Edwards, welcome to the program. All right, let's start with these rankings. Uh, and they are there are two distinct rankings, uh, the safest small towns and safest cities in the country. What's the purpose behind these rankings? Well, the main reason that we started doing these rankings was just to spark conversation about how we perceive our safety and how well that lines up with reality. Like, do we feel like we're safe in our town? And do the crime rates reflect that as an accurate uh, representation or not? And that gives us the opportunity to talk about what each of us can do to create a safer life at home and in our communities. I don't know whether you could measure this or not, but uh, uh, what you what you just described when you say the perception of, of of people being safe where they live, I wonder how much that measures up or compares with the actual rankings using statistics. I, I mean, have you heard anecdotally at all about maybe some towns and cities that uh, didn't feel safe that really were safe if you look at the statistics? Yeah, we actually conduct a survey every year where we ask people how safe do you feel in your at your home and, and in your state. And what we have found out overwhelmingly is that people feel a lot more worried about their safety than they need to be. Most of the time, we're way more concerned in places that have lower crime rates than um, places that have higher ones, which is really strange. So our perceptions do tend to not line up with reality. But we're hoping that that's a reassuring thing when we have these conversations so that people know, gosh, crime isn't as bad you know, as I, I might think that it is. Unfortunately, as you mentioned at the beginning, Things have shifted a lot in the past couple of years. We are seeing a lot of headlines, um, a lot of spikes in violent crime uh, nationwide, and Pennsylvania has certainly not been immune to that. So I'm, I'm curious, perception, and you mentioned the word headlines. I remember a story from a few years ago that uh, if you ask people on the street if their communities were safe or if crime rates were up, uh, most would say that crime rates were up. Even though for the past 25 years or so, our mm -hmm. crime rates nationwide have been going down. And a lot of that was tr attributed to media coverage that uh, the television news, for example, uh, was pointed to as a reason that many people, the coverage of crimes, that, that many people would say that their communities weren't safe or their crime rates were going up. Do you have any kind of research on that? Yeah, um, across the board, we've found for the past three years that about 67% of Americans do think that crime has been increasing. And you're absolutely correct that it hasn't been. Almost for three decades, it's been going down. Um, and we've also been asking people about their media consumption because I've been trying to determine if there is any measurable link between how much we're consuming you know, and our, our sense of safety. And I haven't been able to find anything that directly links it. What I think is a little bit more uh, one thing I tell people is if we're seeing it in headlines, it means it's an outlier event. So it's not happening. It's not super commonplace. You don't hear about every time, you know, someone's bike gets stolen, right? Because that's just become very um, common. Larceny thefts are the biggest property crimes that happen everywhere in America. Um, but you see headlines for things that are unusual, that are exceptional. And so 
we're going to see the headlines for the kind of the worst news. Uh, what I've recognized anecdotally from people and even in my own life is it's the what, numerous ways that we're bombarded with news. It's not just media. It's not just headlines. It's my mom on Facebook, um, you know, and her friends freaking out about whatever they saw somebody post. And that can interrupt me in the middle of my work day. It can wake me up at night um, if I have, uh, you know, alerts and things set up. And so I think there's so many ways that quote, news could get to us um, that we're inundated a lot more. It's not just news at, you know, 6 and 11. Hmm. If, if you're just tuning in, our guest during this portion of the program is Rebecca Edwards. She's a security expert, safety and technology reporter for SafeWise.com, which has done recent surveys on the safest towns in America, the safest cities in the country, and including Pennsylvania. Uh, and good news is there are several communities right here in the mid-state area of Pennsylvania that are on the list of safest places in America. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So we should talk about how you actually came up with these rankings. What was the criteria that you used? Yep, the rankings are really simple and straightforward. And we look strictly at crime rates per capita. So we looked at how many crimes were reported per 1,000 people in all of the cities that um, meet our population threshold. For the safest small towns in America, those are cities between 2,500 and 15,000 in population. And we ranked the number of violent crimes per 1,000 and the number of property crimes per 1,000. And then we, you know, gets weighted and normalized by the, the data analysts and um, that puts people into the ranking. All right. So as far as trends go, let's divide those two. Uh, violent crimes and property crimes. What trends did you see across the country? So across the country, what we saw when we um, calculated these rates, you know, earlier in the year, we had to use the FBI's um, latest data at the time, which was based on 2019 reporting. And at that time, violent crime was holding steady across the country and property crime was continuing to decline. And as we saw things happen during the pandemic, um, you know, I had a gut feeling that a violent crime might be looking to go up when we get the final 2020 numbers. And that's exactly what has happened. And uh, Pennsylvania is uh, mim mimicking those trends. Um, almost, you know, identically, um, except there was an uptick in property crime in uh, Pennsylvania um, between 2019 and 2020 overall, which um, is not the trend nationally. Nationally, only violent crime went up, but property crime continued to decline. So what constitutes a property crime? So property crimes include, um, as I said, larceny theft. So that's someone stealing your bike, um, any kind of a theft that didn't involve a force or a person being involved in it. It also includes uh, things like arson and um, burglaries. So break into a house um, where people are not involved because then it becomes a robbery, which is a violent crime and um, motor vehicle thefts. Hmm. Uh, so were there any things that you saw in common, any characteristics that you saw in common uh, amongst these uh, small towns and cities uh, that were mm -hmm. safe? You know, 
I've been really searching to find out what the commonalities are. Typically, you're going to find that the communities that report the lowest number of crimes have more resources than the communities that report higher numbers of crimes um, and everything from educational resources to financial resources. So we usually have higher than the national median income or even the state median income in these cities. Um, and a lot of times they're suburbs, they're commuter towns. So a lot of times they're moving into cities where more crime is happening and we're spending a lot of our days there. We go home at night, stick around our neighborhood, um, and we just don't have the same number of opportunities uh, for crimes to be occurring. And so I think the suburban aspect definitely plays a role as far as it kind of skewing this picture. But uh, Pennsylvania overall always has a large number of cities that report low crimes and the state as a whole always remains well below national averages. So those are those are positive things for sure. All right, so let's talk about Pennsylvania in particular. Uh, where are and what were some of uh, the safest uh, towns and cities in Pennsylvania? Yeah, our number one safest small town in America is from Pennsylvania and that's Luzerne Township. And there were zero violent crimes and zero property crimes reported. And that's the second year in a row. So Luzerne has been up there two times, um, which is pretty impressive to repeat that uh, two years in a row. Well, We've also me, got can I, can, um, can I, Providence. Could I, could I, just, could I just interrupt oh, yeah. for one second? That Luzerne Township, uh, uh, there is a Luzerne Township in Fayette County, and I think that's the one you're referring to. And there is a, a Luzerne Township yes. in Luzerne County uh, near Wilkesbury in, in Pennsylvania. But Luzerne Township in uh, Fayette County in southwestern Pennsylvania is the one you're referring to with zero crimes. And as you said, yes. second year in a row, the safest small town in America. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but go ahead. Just wanted no. to point that out. No, that was important. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, also showing up in our list of 100 safest small towns is Upper Providence, uh, Mill Creek Township, East Brandywine, Spring Township in Center County. And then I've got one, West Coke. Cocalico. West Cocalico oh, in Lancaster County. <laughs> <laughs> it's West Cocalico in Lancaster County. Okay, yes, in Lancaster. Uh, West Vincent in Chester County and Dallas Township, which is in Luzerne County. Mm -hmm. And so those are the eight um, Pennsylvania uh, towns that made the list this year. And I wanted to point out also that Mill Creek Township that you mentioned as one of the safest in the country is Mill Creek in Lebanon County, which is in our listing area, because there are several Mill Creek Townships in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania as well. So good news for the residents who live in those areas and uh, really for Pennsylvania overall. Did you compare mm -hmm. the 50 states by any, by any chance? We do compare the 50 states, um, I know, and off the top of my head. Pennsylvania is one of, is one of the best spots, as I said. Um, last year, below the national averages, both in violent crime and property crime, um, in violent crime, Pennsylvania was below the national average of one fewer incident per 1,000 people than the rest of the country, and almost 10 fewer incidents per 1,000 when it comes to property crime. So Pennsylvania overall is always one of the safest states in general. Mm, that's good across news. the country. All right, so let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. The cities and towns that reported the most crimes, and let's talk with, uh, we'll start with nationally with that. Uh, where are some of the cities and towns that... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I should refer to them as most dangerous or maybe uh, more accurately th that had the most crimes. 
Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. But it, more accurately, there's the ones that reported that the most crimes happened per capita. And um, so I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dangerous, but there's a lot of crime happening <laughs> compared to other places. Um, yeah, Pennsylvania doesn't show up um, even near the bottom of our rankings in any way. Um, but the town, that, the small town that reported the most violent crimes in the country is Sauk Village from Illinois. And that was the highest number of violent crimes reported. Um, 54 violent crimes per 1,000 incidents is what they reported in the same ranking that where Luzerne came out with zero. And then um, as far as property crime goes, Emeryville, California, which is a San Francisco suburb, it's a Bay Area suburb, reported the highest number of property crimes per capita with over 200 incidents happening per thousand people in that town. And there's been a lot of, I go back to headlines, a lot of news lately about the Bay Area and specifically property crime and neighborhoods hiring their own like private patrols and stuff. There's something going on there. And uh, yeah, it, people are unsettled. <laughs> so when you were talking about the safest places in the country and we talked about commonalities that uh, most of these places have resources, in other words, money, education, that kind of thing. What about mm -hmm. the, the ones that have the most crimes? Is it just the opposite? It typically is. Yep. They usually have lower high school graduation rates. They have higher uh, numbers of the population that are living below the poverty line. Um, and not just higher than the safest places, but usually higher than the national averages. And they usually have lower per capita uh, median household income as well. And so, I mean, you can't draw a direct line, but um, those are the most consistent commonalities we can find. Hmm. So you said that Pennsylvania, there are none on the list of uh, where the most crimes are. Do you happen to know uh, where in Pennsylvania does have the most crime or the highest rates? Well, from this, um, from this report in particular, they're um, South Strabane, Strabane? Strabane, yeah. Know. Strabane had the highest ranking of all the small towns that we looked at. There were 2,111 total. Um, Strabane comes in at 1,796. Um, but they still had a really low violent crime rate. There was just 1.4 violent crimes per 1,000 people there. What got them at the bottom of the list was 42.7 property crimes per 1,000 people. And that's, you know, prop population driven. There are only 404 total property crimes, but there's fewer than 6,000 people that live there. That's Traban, by the way, and I mispronounced it Traban. myself. Yeah, and it's in uh, Adams County, uh, which again is in our in our listening area. Interesting. And so tell me a little bit about SafeWise.com and uh, uh, go back to why you wanted to do this for rankings. What does it, what's it, does it do for SafeWise? Yeah, so at SafeWise, we are an online resource that helps people create safer lives at home and in their communities. And so we um, test and try out and recommend a lot of different um, safety, security, um, and smart home uh, security systems and products and tips and tricks and uh, to see what is the easiest, what's most affordable, and what is most effective when it comes to being proactive about our safety, whether it's at home or when we're out and about. And so we cover everything from personal protection. Um, I tested a bunch of pepper sprays <laughs> this fall before uh, people went back to college and um, all the way on up to full-blown, you know, home security systems from like ADT and stuff like that. But we, I like to recommend a lot of, there's just common sense things we can all do every day to stay safer. And we do these rankings to have those conversations. You know, most burglaries happen without any force. People walk in and, and 
unlocked door or open an unlocked window. Locking our doors, it's something we've been told our whole lives, can make a huge difference um, between whether our house gets, you know, targeted or not. Hmm. Uh, Rebecca Edwards is a security expert, safety and technology reporter for SafeWise.com. Interesting rankings. Thank you very much for being with us today. The number of murders increased by almost 30 percent nationwide in 2020, according to a recent report from the FBI. Meanwhile, homicides spiked in 29 major cities through September of this year, including in Philadelphia, where 500 murders have been reported in 2021, including the 500th just last week. Pennsylvania's murder rate went up 39 percent in 2020. The big question is why there are more murders and what can be done about it. Our guest today, Jeff Asher, is a data consultant with AH Datalytics. They study crime. And former Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Uh, Jeff Asher, let me start with you. We heard the numbers, but give us a sense of what these numbers actually mean. A 30 percent increase in the number of murders equals what across the country? So it's about 5,000 more murders than happened last year. And it is around 21,000, I think 750 total murders. So that's the first year over 20,000 in really 25 years. It's the most murders since the mid nineties. Um, it's the highest murder rate since, which accounts for a larger population in the country uh, since the late nineties, um, still down about 20 to 30 percent from where we were in the, um, the at the peak in the early 90s of murder nationally. But, that, you know, at least in my opinion, that that's sort of um, it's it's, I think, important context. But if, uh, you know, I'm a Saints fan in New Orleans, if the Saints go six and 10 in a year, you don't point out that they went one in 15 in 1980 and make yourself feel better. It's all about how are we doing and what is our progress? And so I think it, it shows a reversal of really a couple of decades of progress um, to the point where 2014, we had the lowest murder rate that we'd ever recorded. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a dramatic reversal from where we were just a few years ago. You know, whenever we have a conversation like this, when we're talking about uh, more than 20,000 people dying by homicide, 5,000 more than the year before, Always like the I, I don't know. It just feels uncomfortable, awkward to be talking about it in uh, in numbers with an emphasis on numbers. Now I know data is what you do, obviously, but uh, we've got to remember that these were each individual lives, each families that were impacted by this, and will we continue to be impacted by? So the big question, Jeff, I'll ask you first: is why? Why do we think uh, or what has the research shown as to why the number of homicides has increased so much? I mean, that, that's one where, you know, we could probably talk for the next eight hours and still not come to a firm conclusion. It's it's something that when you look back to the 90s, there's not really a, a strong consensus as to why murder fell in the 90s. And so we're talking only a couple of months removed from when the murder increase began we don't really know with a ton of confidence exactly why the rate of murders increased so dramatically. Um, what we do have is a handful of factors that we can point to that likely were strong contributors to the, the increase. Um, 
Some of the most important factors are early on the pandemic. We know from the FBI's data that murder was up in the early parts of the pandemic. So things like uh, increased domestic violence, increased strains and the stresses of that, that initial early part of quarantine um, possible contributors. And then we know that murder increased dramatically after the murder of George Floyd. And so um, all of the, the responses that occurred to um, the, the murder of George Floyd uh, weren't inherently causal, but there's the, this, this idea that it basically sparked a, what's called a police legitimacy crisis, where, which has two parts to it. One, if people aren't trusting of the police or are less trusting of the police, then they're more likely to take things into their own hands to create this cycle of violence to to be um, willing to take on retribution killings, um, and it it basically leads to, as I mentioned, this cycle of violence. And two, we saw pretty dramatic depolicing where police basically pulled back in a lot of cities in the May, June, July timeframe. Um, the degree to which that caused the increase not really known, but it's certainly potentially one of the factors that contributed to it. Um, and then the third thing that I'd point out is that we know that there were historic levels of firearms um, being sold in the country early in 2020. We know from uh, an evaluation I did of stops and arrest data in a handful of cities that have it, um, that people were carrying firearms early in the pandemic, in the March, April, May timeframe um, at levels that they hadn't before. And that persisted through the end of the year. So that wasn't a cause of the increase, but it might have been sort of an accelerant to go along with everything else that led to the increase. And so I think that you have these various factors that you can point to, uh, the pandemic, the firearms, the police legitimacy crisis, depolicing, you don't necessarily, though, know what the exact recipe was. What was the which one of these things was most important? Which one was the spark? Was any of them the spark? Um, these are questions that I think criminologists and researchers are still grappling with and will probably be grappling with for the next decade or two. If you're just turning in, we're talking about uh, the increased number of homicides across the country in 2020, a trend that has continued into 2021 across the country, especially in uh, America's largest cities. With our guest today, Jeff Asher, a data consultant with AI. Datalytics, they study crime, and former Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel. If you have a question or a comment, maybe an opinion on why you think the number of murderers is up, what can be done about it? We're looking for your opinions as well. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. John Wetzel is a former Secretary of Corrections here in Pennsylvania, but uh, you've been involved in the criminal justice system for a long, long time. You have to have opinions on why you have seen uh, the number of murders increasing across the country and up by 39% here in Pennsylvania. What, what do you think, Secretary? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks uh, for the opportunity to, to talk. Um, well, you know, I think uh, um, Al Bloomstein is, is the place I look for all things criminal justice in Pennsylvania. And he suggested, uh, as my, my fellow guest suggested, uh, the combination of more guns, uh, he described it as thinned out and stressed out cops or, or kind of uh, the depolicing. 
And then the third thing uh, he points to, which I want to unpack a little bit, is an increase of aggressiveness generally in the public. And, and by unpack that, I think if we look at, you can't look at violence in a vacuum. Um, and I think if you look at other measures, I mean, obviously we've had unprecedented lockdowns as it relates to the pandemic. Um, in the midst of that, or, um, you know, we had the George Floyd situation, which is certainly inflammatory. And I think it points to um, some behavioral health issues. I think if you look in uh, suicide rates in black communities and indigenous communities is up over the same time frame, as is overdoses over the same time frame. And I think these things are indicative of, of behavioral health issues. And I just add this layer that um, early on in the pandemic in particular, but you know, kind of disproportionately, some of the pro-social stabilizing support systems that we have um, were shut down when you look at schools and churches. And I think your previous guest really pointed out um, areas that saw violence also uh, had lower graduation rates, increased poverty, and so I think when we think of schools in particular, and the context here is, you know, when I was still sitting uh, as Secretary of Corrections, we were paying obvious, very close attention to what was going on in Philadelphia. And the most shocking thing was a 20% increase in the, the amount of kids under 18 who were victims of murder, you know? And then when you think of the context of school closures and the role that schools have played, I mean, we're well beyond the three R's, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic as they used to say, we're really looking at schools, especially in these impoverished areas as these support networks and, and, and healthy environments and pro-social supports. And when all that stuff is taken away, um, you know, we're gonna have these issues. And, and with the confluence of guns, you know, I think there's a, a logical trail that, that uh, may, we may be seeing. Couple things, Secretary, that you just brought up that I wanted to follow up on a little bit. Uh, you you talked about uh, the increase in the number of juveniles that uh, have been in, involved in violent crimes and murders in particular. Uh, but and again, I think a lot of this is anecdotal, but so many of these shootings in particular have been over trivial matters. I mean, there was a case in out near Pittsburgh recently that uh, it, w it was an argument. It started as an argument at a baby shower about who was going to uh, transport the, the gifts from the shower. Uh, Drive-by shootings. People, I mean, there was a guy last week sitting at uh, Thanksgiving dinner who shot in a drive-by. Now, granted, it's, it's, I guess what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, it's almost a cliche to say that uh, altercations that were settled with fist are no longer settled with fist or as often with fist as they are with guns. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, if I knew that, I'd probably be a gajillionaire. Um, but we certainly have, have seen that. Um, but again, I think it's, these things also point to um, in, lack of impulse control and, and, again, behavioral health issues. I mean, I think if you're going to go upstream far enough to, to say what's the root cause, I think it goes back to unhealthy people. And, and some of that comes from, as I said, these pro-social systems that have shut down. And, um, you know, again, the drive-by shootings, in some cases in Philadelphia, it almost seems random if you look at the victimology. And I think that as we move forward and try to understand what happened, I think maybe victimology is really 
what would help us better understand it. What are the patterns around who's being uh, who's being shot or who's who's the victim of violent crimes and those kinds of things? But certainly, again, the access to guns. I mean, we th- hear about ghost guns, right? And the work that uh, Rep. Uh, Amon Brown really, I can't think, point us to around just the confluence of these guns that are untrackable. Um, you know, it's certainly the, the, this combination of factors is certainly having an implication. Jeff Asher, let me ask the same question of you. Uh, and again, I don't know whether there's any research about uh, each individual uh, cr- uh, murder out there, but it seems as though uh, there's this rage. Uh, and anger amongst many Americans that uh, they're willing to shoot it out rather than just walk away or even, you know, maybe settle it with their fist. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my pushback on that would be that I don't know that there's more rage inherently than there was earlier in the decade or in the last couple of decades. Um, I guess what's changed is that there's more firearms available. Uh, there were something like almost 40 million firearm sales in 2020, which is you know an, an enormous record relative to previous years, um, and we saw that in some ATF data that was recently released, where uh, the percentage of guns that the ATF was tracing, so basically crime guns that they're finding, um, a much higher percentage of crime guns were newer, were within three to six to, to um, a year, three to six months to a year of their purchase from when they were recovered in a crime. And so what we're basically seeing is um, that it's not inherently that people are madder, but that they've got a different mechanism for carrying out their um, their anger. And it, it doesn't take a ton of incidents where, you know, in previous years, maybe it would have been a stabbing or it would have been a, a fight and you wouldn't have heard anything about it. But one of the participants has a gun that they wouldn't have ordinarily had, and that makes it a shooting, which is a much higher chance of it turning deadly. And so I think that, um, you know, relative to all crimes in America, murder is something like 0.2%. So it doesn't take an enormous amount of additional incidents that would have been a, a stabbing or a, a beating or, a, or some other random incident um, turning into a shooting to make a dramatic increase on the rate of murder. Let me just uh, bring in a, a listener comment. Marianne from Mechanicsburg says, I think it's stress. Prices going up, not being able to feed their families, stress around tech repairs from being at home. Uh, there's an increased sense of hopelessness in the world in which we're living in. And I think that uh, that maybe, you know, depending on each individual person may have something to do with it. There's a good column in the Philadelphia Inquirer today written by an anti-gun violence advocate. Uh, and ask about uh, Philadelphia. This is uh, Philadelphia in particular, but it's something that uh, I'm sure could be consistent across the country. When Ask uh, men why gun gun violence persists. They talked about schools that don't prepare them for living wage jobs. They spoke of families split by mass incarceration. They bemoaned, uh, bemoaned a lack of economic opportunity, and they spoke of a culture driven by social media arguments and punctuated by so-called drill music, a murderous hip-hop soundtrack that celebrates and documents homicides more than anything, though. They spoke of pain and the need to survive. Jeff, Jeff Asher, what do you think of that? Well, I, I think it's similar to uh, sort of what Jill Leovi wrote in Ghetto Side, which is, I think, the 
the best narrative of murder and gun violence in America, where she points to two main factors driving murder um, in and gun violence largely, which are one is a lack of opportunities. So, uh, you know, lack of educational opportunities, lack of employment opportunities, big picture, lack of, of means of basically es escaping difficulty in childhood. Um, and then the other factor she points to is what she calls the lack of a state monopoly on violence in that you've got low murder clearance rates. And we saw last year the murder clearance rate for cities dropped almost 10 percent um, to the lowest level that's ever been recorded. Uh, and so if you know that the likelihood of police solving your buddy's murder is really low and you have an inkling of who did it, and you feel like you have no alternatives in the criminal justice system and no alternatives to escape, then it raises the likelihood of some sort of retribution killing or likelihood of future gun violence. And so um, I, I do certainly think that it's, it's a complicated, there's no one single driver that I would point to, um, but, but that's one that, um, that has always resonated with me as one of the plausible drivers of all of this. When you talk about that clearance rate uh, in 2020, it was 54 percent for homicides across the country. That means that uh, all, just a little more than half of the murderers in this country were solved last year. That's a lot of, of open cases right there. The crime rate is actually down overall. It is uh, uh, violent crime. A number of aggravated assaults rose nearly 12 percent between 2019 and 2020. Uh, but the, the, the murder rate went up by uh, over 29 percent, almost 30 percent. Our guest today, Jeff Asher, a data consultant with AH Datalytics. They study crime. Former Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. If you'd like to weigh in, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Secretary Wetzel, um, the police chief in Washington, D.C., just recently was talking about the number of uh, shooting deaths, gun violence uh, that resulted in deaths in uh, D.C. And uh, one of the things he blamed was a lack, lack of accountability in the criminal justice system. As I said, you know, you've been involved in the criminal justice system for a long time. You've been you were the, behind many reforms in the corrections uh, system, uh, but criminal justice overall that you advocated for. When you when he says that there's a lack of accountability in the criminal justice system, I mean, he didn't say specifically what he was talking about. But when you hear that, what do you think? I mean, I think that's a, a, a general statement for a specific problem. Um, I think, but it's also uh, an area that we should start. So I would tell you that what we did um, early 2021, when we saw the numbers coming out of 2020, is really looked at to see if, for instance, we had a significant reduction in state prison population over COVID, 8,000 less people. So we looked to see is the proportion of people on parole who commit these crimes, has that gone up, which would be an indication that we weren't making good decisions as to who to, who to get out and those kinds of things. And we didn't see that. So I think um, you know, two things. I think it's really important that we we uh, have the discipline and, and find a way to really try to drill down and make kind of database statements around what's going on. And the second, but the caveat to that is 
2020-2021, it's going to it's going to take us years to understand what that really means. And, and it's important that we remember, especially early on in COVID, um, we saw a significant reduction in activity, a significant reduction in arrests um, in general, right? Less policing, but then um, you you're always going to get policing for murder. I guess is what I'm saying, and for other some things that would normally get arrests when you reduce the amount of number of police officers on the street because of uh, people with COVID coupled with a reduction in enforcement on some of the quality of life stuff. I just don't wanna over um, overuse the two years of very unusual years to project either what happened in the past or what's, gonna, what's happening moving forward. Mm. You have been an advocate in the past for bail reform. I think we you actually appeared on the program before uh, with uh, Pennsylvania's f- former victim advocate Jennifer Storm talking about bail reform. One particular case, the man accused of killing six people at a parade in Wisconsin last week uh, was free on $1,000 bail. And as I said, you have advocated for bail reform. Critics saw that $1,000 bail and said, see, this is what happens when someone who has a long criminal history, long rap sheet, uh, including violent crimes, is free on uh, such a small amount of bail. What does that say to, to, to you when you when you heard that? Yeah, well, the first thing it says is, and, and the district attorney who was ultimately responsible for that said they made a bad decision, that it wasn't consistent with their policy. And so, but I would also say that this is how we got to mass incarceration, taking one anecdote and overgeneralizing it and, and saying, well, we can't, we got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, certainly when you talk about bail reform and you can look just at New Jersey, uh, we saw when they initially initiated their bail reform, they saw a reduction in jail population, but not an increase in crime. Um, and, and what we generally talk about is is making good decisions as it relates to public safety, which is actually what the Pennsylvania Constitution says, uh, public safety and, and showing up for court. So again, I think we need to be very cautious about using anecdotes when someone admittedly made a bad decision to say, oh, we gotta, we gotta overuse uh, incarceration as a response to crime again. Jeff Asher, something you said earlier in the program, I, I don't know, I, I find it concerning a little bit when you said we really don't know what caused the spike in crime in the early 1990s. Well, here we are 30 years later. I mean, the research hasn't told us what caused that crime spike, that wave of crime in the early 1990s, and what did happen as a result of uh, that crime wave in the 1990s was that legislatures had tougher laws, uh, mandatory sentencing laws. A lot of the things that they enacted then are being rolled back now. So I guess my concern is, if we don't know 30 years later, how are we going to know what's going on right now? I mean, that's a good question. We're, we're not going to know is, I think, the problem. Um, that's part of the reason that we don't know is that we don't really collect good data on a lot of these issues. And that was true in the 90s, and it's true now. Um, I'm, I guess I'm hopeful that we're collecting better data now. And we're seeing things like, as you mentioned, that there was the response was to have mass incarceration. Um, and what we saw as incarceration fell through much of the last decade, um, that there wasn't an increase in crime rates. For the most part, there wasn't an increase in murder. Um, and so we saw that 
not inherently that reducing incarceration leads to lower crime or lower murders, but I think that the idea that these two things can be accomplished separately and can be that one can reduce incarceration and one can also reduce crime and reduce gun violence is an important factor because uh, the the goal of reducing incarceration and things like bail reform and um, and making the system fairer and more responsive to public safety rather than who can pay bail, what bail. Um, the, the goal there is not inherently to reduce crime, but it's to do all of these other things. And so, um, as the secretary mentioned, you're always going to have these one-off rare cases that are that are terrible and just tragedies, um, but that are extraordinarily rare and don't represent the vast majority of, of cases um, when they occur. And so, um, I guess getting back to your question that I think the, the key is to always be improving our data collection, always be improving our, our analysis so that we can better understand what the drivers are and what the drivers aren't. And if we enact policies making evaluation and analysis an important um, aspect of those policies in the criminal justice system, because otherwise you're left blind and having, you know, grasping for straws as to what the actual cause was and what was most effective. This would seem to be difficult research because there's not a one-to-one correlation. If you spend more money on education, test scores go up. Uh, uh, you know, students are getting better educations. Uh, if the if the number of murders goes down, do we know that's because of education or other factors? So, as someone who studies this, you're a former police officer, right, Jeff? Uh, analyst. I was never analyst. Okay, but for the New Orleans Police Department, I mean, this would seem to be difficult research to begin with because it's hard to point to any one thing and say, "Aha, that's what it is." Well, absolutely, and it, it's it's made harder by lacks of of data collection and analysis. And so you look at at just shootings. If we want to understand gun violence in America, we need to track how many shootings there are and what's the result. Are they fatal? What's the firearm being used? Who the victim was? Who the perpetrator was? Whether or not an arrest was made? What the motivation was? We don't do that. We don't track shootings. We only track murders. Um, but the vast majority of shootings where a person is is hit is is a non-fatal shooting. And so uh, to be able to evaluate and make these programmatic insights, it really starts with improved data collection on the issues um, and improved data access. And a lot of times police departments collect and publish what the FBI says they have to collect and publish, which oftentimes or most times doesn't make sense for criminologists or economists or analysts or whoever wants to research the data and understand exactly what the cause was of a change or whether or not a policy was impactful. Um, And so it makes it very difficult to to evaluate things where the the data collection side does not meet the data analysis side. Vince from Lebanon brings up a point, and I wanted to raise this as well. The state legislature in Pennsylvania wants to pass a law where you wouldn't need a license to carry a concealed weapon. Now, Vince's opinion is, I can't imagine why anyone would vote for this, but I think that will contribute to the issue. Now, that does mean there could be more guns on the on the street out there. The other side would argue that, well, we need people to be able to... Pr- 
be able to protect themselves because let's, there's a 30% increase in murder. Uh, Jeff, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, uh, these open carry laws or uh, being able to carry a concealed weapon without a license, would that contribute to the problem? Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the research says, but I, I think that um, overall, the more firearms that are on the streets, the more likelihood that you're going to have um, a shooting and the the likelihood of, you know, you, that you have some sort of victimization in a self-defense manner is reasonably low. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly the degree to which these open carry laws are inherently the cause, um, but I think that any legislation that leads to more firearms on the streets um, is not helpful in a gun violence reduction standpoint. We only have about three minutes left, and I... Uh in reference that uh, article in the uh, the column in the Philadelphia Inquirer today where uh, they, they had five recommendations. Just want to read these off and see what the two of you think. Uh, first, we call on local universities to partner with neighborhood schools, creating a new educational pipeline for students who are threatened by gun violence. Second, we call on the prison system to use incarcerated leaders to fight gun violence from inside the prison walls. Third, we call on medical schools to bring mental health substations to our communities. Fourth, we call Calling corporations to create jobs by for returning citizens and government to give them tax credits for doing so. Fifth, we call on our sports industry to fund community members to work as resource connectors to steer young people to proven and effective health. Secretary Wetzel, there are two in particular of those recommendations: uh, prison system uh, leaders from behind prison walls, and uh, you brought up mental health. Talking about mental schools bringing mental health substations to the communities. Your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't think any of those uh, recommendations are bad ideas. And we certainly actually do that currently uh, from SCI Phoenix and SCI Chester working with folks in the community. I think one of, one of the challenges and one of, one of the gaps, if you will, especially in the, the Philadelphia context, is the lack of alignment. Um, you know, lack of a, you can't, solutions cannot uh, occur in a vacuum. And it's not one agency doing one thing, one agency doing another. This is complicated stuff. We do have terrible data. I want to put an exclamation point on that. We really need to do a better job with that. But it's it's not necessarily the solution until we define the problem and have some alignment and all the key um, agencies working together to try to target a reduction in, in violence. And I don't see that occurring right now. Uh, Jeff, we only have about two minutes left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. What are some of the solutions here? Are there solutions? Well, I mean, those, as I would agree that those are all good ideas in a vacuum. I think that the challenge is that none of them are actually getting it at the actual people that are engaged in gun violence right now um, in a more tactical sense. And so uh, I have always pitched that we know from a lot of research that gun violence is incredibly concentrated. There's a small subset of people within uh, populations that are most likely to engage in gun violence. And I think that if you can find that population and you can engage that population with, with services and with um, determining non-law enforcement type interventions, um, that it could really go a long way in figuring out which interventions work and measuring the heck out of it. Um, I think that that's gonna be your best bet uh, it's, it's not bad to invest in these big structural changes conceptually, but if you want to lower murder over the next 12 to 24 months, you really have to think much more tactically and think about 
the people that are most likely to be involved in gun violence and how you can prevent that risk from becoming reality. And in, in about 30 seconds, uh, is that still true even in the last two years that most of these murders are occurring in concentrated areas? Yeah, there's no reason to doubt that the the concentration of gun violence has changed. It's just grown um, in in terms of the number of people that were at risk that were that were uh, that were engaged in gun violence. And so um, it it's still it's happening everywhere, but where in the places that it's happening, it's it's a very concentrated population. Jeff Asher is a data consultant with AH Datalytics, former Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day.